First, it's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is I grew up in France, where it's sort of accepted that the Lumiere brothers invented film, and anybody who has an alternative theory um, is, is sort of considered a crackpot, and it's about the same as saying the earth is flat. Um, and in most cases, that's how it would play out. People would have um, sort of favored, obscure historical figures who they claimed may have made a film or invented a camera before the Lumiere brothers. And it was never really um, substantiated. But when I first heard about Le Prince, what was really fascinating to me was um, he did exist, obviously. He had been granted patents um, because they were approved and they're still on the record. And those were the first patents for motion picture machines. And his camera and projector still exist. And people have built replicas of the camera through which they can feed film and, and the camera works. Um, and fragments of his early films still exist, um, made six years, seven years before the Mir brothers made anything and very easy to date because of the people who are in them. And so what was really intriguing to me about Le Prince beyond the disappearance and the mystery aspect was here was a guy who had the patents, had the machines, had the films, it all exists, it's all preserved. There really should be no doubt whatsoever that he's the first person to have made a motion picture. And still, no one's ever heard of him. Yeah, it's one of the great kind of Victorian unsolved mysteries. You know, guy gets on a train, um, train arrives at its destination in Paris and guy has disappeared, luggage has disappeared, body is never found. Um, and, you know, this is, as you said, it's 1890. Um, it's around the time Sherlock Holmes is, is coming into the newspapers and fiction. And it's one of those kind of Holmesian mysteries almost where someone just vanishes and no one knows what happened to them. And that's a really interesting combination, right? It's got that very Victorian mystery looking to be solved. And then, as you say, it's got this um, other layer that I think we write the history of innovation focusing on the sole people who kind of, quote unquote, got there first or are remembered for getting there first. And, you know, with every technological improvement, there's dozens, hundreds, thousands of other people who came very, very close. But because they don't actually cross the finish line first, um, history kind of forgets them entirely. You know, there's no benefit to being second or in Le Prince's case, in being first, but not being able to, to make a commercial enterprise out of it. And so I also wanted through Le Prince to write about these people that I guess metaphorically kind of vanish as well in history um, because there was a whole generation who for, you know, their own individual reasons, whether they were scientific or financial or artistic were um, trying to invent motion pictures. It was kind of every new innovation in the 19th century had led to the next one. And once people had got photography and then the ability to take photographs almost instantaneously, it became evident to several people like Le Prince that if you could take a bunch of photographs instantaneously, then you could connect them together and make them move. Um, and, you know, our textbooks remember Thomas Edison or the Lumiere brothers as being the people who invented film, as if that innovation came out of a, a bolt of lightning that struck them. But I really wanted to write it how it happened, which was that, you know, dozens of people were trying to 
to find their way through the maze to this to this kind of treasure invention. For sure. And what I, you know, again, growing up in Europe, my image of Edison, of Edison was really that kind of superficial one most people have of, you know, kind of colossus genius who invented the modern world. And, and what I found digging into him for this book was there really kind of are two phases of his kind of inventive peak, which can be kind of separated into, you know, that early phase at Menlo Park in New Jersey, where he really is um, an inventor himself, and he's doing stuff with his own hands, and he's coming up with stuff for Western Union, and he's revolutionizing, um, you know, communications along the railroads and so on. And then there's this phase, which is about a decade later, new lab at West Orange, uh, new wife, new setup. Um, and at this point, Edison, you know, you were saying kind of a factory, it was kind of a factory, the, 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 the lab he had was very much kind of like a modern R&D department. And he was kind of the guy who oversaw what other engineers and inventors were doing. And he, you know, by the late 1880s, Edison, he was kind of on a losing streak. He was kind of, he was battling George Westinghouse over what form of electricity worked better. He was already quite well known for taking credit for stuff that wasn't really his. Um, he was already kind of mocked in the newspapers for making big, bold claims and never delivering on them. Um, and a lot of these new innovations, like motion pictures, he didn't totally understand, let alone master. And so what he would do, you know, I always compare him to a kind of Steve Jobs figure at this point, where, you know, the way Jobs, people said, couldn't really code himself, but he understood the kind of overall vision Edison couldn't do some of this new technology stuff that had passed him by, but he could see the overall vision of that'll make some money, that won't. Obviously, it was hit and miss for Edison. And the same way someone like Steve Jobs had a personal image and it was very carefully curated and he had his turtlenecks and his glasses and his jeans and he came out on stage to kind of announce the future. So Edison had his very carefully curated workman's coat and apple pie and cigar and disheveled hair and he came out to the new york sun and and announced what the future would be like um and 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 you know coming kind of hand in hand with that was this idea also that he was by this point you know kind of a a, a ceo figure a man running a company backed with a lot of money and so that also meant um you know underhand tactics and suing people and breaking up unions and, you know, all these ways of pressing your advantage um, that have kind of contributed to us thinking of him in the less rosy way. Restlessness, and there's something really modern, I think, about him as well and about his family. There's, you know, we can envision people in, in, in the kind of Victorian era being a bit set in stone. You know, they live in England and they work in Whitechapel. Or they live in England and they're a Queen's Council or that kind of thing. And Le Prince, like a lot of people around this time, because the world was changing so much, because it had gone within a generation, really, from a Europe where people didn't leave their hometowns very much to a Europe where people could sail in three weeks, which felt like the Concorde to them, could sail in three weeks to America um, and had, you know, rudimentary telephones and, and telegraphs and cable and so on. There were people who were trying different things. And Le Prince, you know, as you say, born in a part of France, 
that was sort of German and kind of handled the two languages, grew up in France, studied in Switzerland and in Germany and in France, and then moved to England and then moved to the United States, spoke a bunch of different languages, had four or five different careers. Um, his wife, Lizzie, you know, had, had grown up in England, but had gone to France to study the arts um, in the same studio as Rodin, and then came home and had children and all the traditional stuff, but also helped to start an art school and helped to write in newspapers. Um, and, you know, they really believed in education and they really believed in this idea of, which was very Victorian and middle class, this idea that progress was kind of unstoppable, that if you came up with new technologies and ideas and processes, it could only improve people's lot. Um, and so Le Prince, this kind of fragmented growing up he has, um, weirdly brings him to this place of, invent of inventing motion pictures because here's a guy who loves painting, who studies optics and chemistry, who works in entertainment, who works as a technical draftsman. And you would think these are all very different kind of fields, but if you're trying to invent moving images, they're kind of all the perfect bits of background you need. Um, and I think that contributed to him, not just getting there first, quote unquote, if that matters, but also contributed to him having a vision for the medium that as far as I can tell, no one else really had. Well, it's a, so that's two different questions in a way, in the sense that, um, like if, if you were to make it into a film, I've always said, and there's a producer in France we're working with, um, you know, to me, the film has to be about Lizzie, really, instead of Louis, in the sense that, you know, if you have a film about a guy at a desk, he, exactly. If you have a film about a guy at a desk inventing something, that's very dull to look at. But if you have a film about a woman looking for her husband who's gone missing, just as you're about to change the world, that's very interesting. As for the second part of it, I kind of make my case at the end of the book. Um, and so I guess for anybody listening who's very keen to avoid spoilers of any kind, just hit that button that fast forwards 30 seconds. Exactly. But I think, as you say, the Edison thing is a very glaring red herring. It becomes obvious very quickly that that's not what Edison did. That wasn't his modus operandi. And really the reason that matters is because Le Prince's family was so convinced Edison had something to do with it, that it kind of ripped their family apart. For me, having dug through a bunch of archives and having employed half a dozen researchers and having looked as deeply as we could, I have a theory I feel really strongly about that is kind of much closer to home and that it was someone that Le Prince knew very, very well and that it was someone um, who had an interest um, in Le Prince's work in motion pictures, though maybe not in the way one might expect, um, and that it's you know perhaps the kind of crime that was more uh, sordid and pedestrian and tragic and sad than, you know, Thomas Edison being Lex Luthor in this case. Um, and I feel pretty strongly about it. There's no, you know, it, you start these things going, I'm going to find a smoking gun. There's going to be a confession letter. There's going to be someone's miss, something someone's missed. And obviously it's been 140 years. If there was something like that, someone would have found it, but we found some stuff no one's found before that, that, you know, to me, uh, if I was in the jury, I would convict based on that evidence. Sure. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye.